The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. I want to read the kind of chapter in the Bible that I don't know about you, but it bothers me. So uh, listen, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis to chapter 16. And if you're familiar with that chapter, I suspect you already are thinking negatively. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. I don't know about you, but there are some chapters in the Bible that embarrass me, and if I'd been putting it together, they wouldn't have been included, and this is one of them. Because you will remember that from the New Testament, we are told that Abraham is to be the model for you, and Abraham is to be the model for me. The New Testament is very explicit on that. You will remember that Paul, in his first letter, perhaps the first letter he wrote, writing to the Galatians, when he got ready to pick out a model as to what it means to be justified by faith and saved by grace, he used Abraham as his model. When he wrote that greatest of all the New Testament letters, the book of Romans, you will remember that when he gets to the fourth chapter and wants to give us an illustration of what you and I are supposed to be, he takes 
Abraham as, as the model. If you will read the Hebrew letter, you will remember in that roll call of the heroes of the faith, in chapter 11, the longest section is given to Abraham. And even James, when he's talking about the relationship of faith and works, picks out Abraham as the model for us all. Not only in the New Testament, you read through the book of Psalms, and you will find that God is perpetually identifying himself with Abraham and identifying himself as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And here is the model for us all, and what a miserable story we've got. But apparently the best of us have days like this, and so it may be the providence of God that this story is given. You will remember that Abraham was the one that God chose out of all the people in the earth to be the father of his own people. Because God came to Abraham and said, I want to save the world and I've got to start somewhere and I've decided to start with you. And so he told him, I want you to leave her, the Chaldees, leave your country, leave your family, you leave your social position and status and go out where you don't know where you're going. And if you do, I will give you a seed so that you will have a great progeny and your, your descendants will be more numerous than the sands of the sea. He was 75, his wife was 65, and they had no children. He said, I will give you a land, and it will be a land of promise for you. I will make your name great so that you're known throughout the earth, and I will make you a means of grace and of blessing to all the nations of the earth. Quite a promise. And so Abraham does what God tells him to do. He leaves his home, he leaves his country, he leaves his status in life, he leaves his securities, and he goes out because of an inner voice that is spoken to him within, and he says, I believe it is safe to trust him. Now ten years have passed, and it's a memory. Have you ever had experiences that you looked back and wondered if they're really true? Don't you imagine that Abraham, when he got to be 80, said, uh, you reckon I misunderstood back there? I don't know about you, but one of the hardest things in my life has been to find the leading of God. Most of the time it hasn't come like a stroke, like I have a brother-in-law that God spoke to him one day and said, you're to preach, and it was clear as if it were written in cloud letters in the sky. I stumbled into the ministry, and I've stumbled into most of the things that God led me in. I don't get any credit for being real sensitive and being able to hear his voice crystal clear and saying, that's the way he wants me to go in boldly pushing ahead. He's had to push and channel me like a cow being run down a chute to her own execution. Now, uh, Abraham, don't you imagine that Abraham on occasion looked back and said, did I hear correctly? Maybe I misunderstood some of what he said. And don't you imagine that Sarah did when she was 70 years of age and she said, me, I have a child. And when she was 75, she said, you know, we must have misunderstood him. So we have to do something to help him out. Always beware of the people who want to help God out. We like to get uh, God where we can 
got some leverage on him and can make him perform. And so, since God won't perform, they were going to do it for him. Deadly dangerous. But you can understand why. In that society, in that world, the major function of marriage was to produce children. They knew nothing about the kind of marriage manuals that flood the market in this country and this idea of marriage being a very happy experience. That was not a part of the thinking. You will remember it was to have progenies because children meant wealth and security. And a woman's success in life was determined by how many children she had. That was the evidence of the blessing of God. So that Sarah found herself the object of scorn and contempt by the servants in her own family. She could hear the servants as they said, Poor Miss Sarah. Never had any children, obviously never going to have any. And now her husband's got this crazy notion that God's going to give him a child through her. And you know and I know that it isn't going to be true. And all the neighbors felt exactly the same way. If you ever saw a person who had a poor image socially, Sarah in that society had a very poor image and she suffered because of it. And so she came to Abraham and said, there's a way to help God out. We can get him out of his bind. Now what she suggested to me is highly offensive. And I suspect it's highly offensive to you because you and I understand the biblical pattern for marriage, monogamy, one man for one woman, one woman for one man. And those two are supposed to be faithful to each other. We know that children are a gift from God, but it's not our business to add to our harem in order to have them. And so uh, we find ourselves offended by what was taking place. We also find ourselves offended when Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham. There's no indication Hagar asked for this role. Sarah asked her to perform this. She did. Then she got pregnant, and she began to get proud. And so Sarah turned and blamed Abraham for it all. And Abraham said, she's yours. Do with you what you please. And Sarah drove her out. Now... That doesn't seem to be the model for many of us on either hand, Abraham or Sarah. But let me remind you of something. Are you aware that Abraham and Sarah lived 4,000 years ago and that neither one of them had seen either an Old Testament or a New Testament? And that neither one of them had ever read or heard the Ten Commandments? Are you aware that neither one of them had ever read Genesis 1 and 2? All that they had, as far as we can tell, is the Spirit of God came to them and said, this is what we want you to do. And with that inner impression, they felt it authentic enough to follow it. Now, you and I, look at all the Christian literature that we have. Look at all the opportunities that we have to be instructed. And you look at oftentimes our moral standards in our day with all of the history we've got. Be careful how you kick Abraham and Sarah. Because you see, 
Everything that she suggested was felt to be not only perfectly legal, but perfectly right in that society. In fact, Sarah would have been greatly remiss according to the moral, ethical standards of that community if she had not done exactly what she did. She was doing her duty to provide for her husband and her family. Now, we know enough about that culture now. The archaeologists have dug up enough tablets that we know the legal system of that country. And we know that this was a perfectly normal legal procedure where a servant girl, a handmaiden, would be given to a husband when the wife was sterile. And then, funny enough, we now know that the law also made a provision that if the maid who became pregnant by the master, if she became uppity and began to be resentful toward her mistress, the law said it was right and proper to expel her. So that everything that Sarah did here was perfectly legal and according to the moral standards of the time, perfectly right. And it made sense. made eminently good sense. After all, God had said, I'll give you a son, and out of that son make out of you a great nation. He said, I want to make your name great. And he said, I want to give you a land. And he said, kings will come out of you. And did you know that every bit of that was fulfilled in Ishmael? All you've got to do is look back across history and know that out of Ishmael came the great mass of the people that are in the Near East today. You're aware that a great mass of those people look not to Jesus Christ as their Savior, but look to Abraham as the model for them and the father of them all. They are not Jews. You are aware that they own most of the real estate in the ancient Near East. And kings have come out of them, and you see them periodically visiting our president in the White House. Everything that God promised to Abraham was fulfilled through Ishmael except Jesus. Now, you know... I have a lot more sympathy for Sarah and Abraham now than I once did. They wanted to do the will and the work of God. But they decided to do it their way instead of His way. And so today, we've got two groups of people in the world that look back to Abraham and claim him as their father. Now, what was wrong with what they did? If you remember, Paul's writing in the Galatian letter, Paul picks up this story and uses it as a classical example of what he wants to say to the, to the Galatians. He says, verse 21 of chapter 4, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman 
and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. They are a metaphor or a type. They are a parable for us. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but we are children of the free woman. Now, what was wrong with Ishmael? The first thing that has to be said is that what was wrong with this whole procedure was it is a classical example of the difference between what you and I can do and what God can do. You know, given right circumstances, it's very easy to produce a baby. Our whole culture is incredibly conscious of that. It doesn't take much to do that. But do you know what it takes to produce a child of God? It takes an act of God, not of man. So the problem here is that in Hagar and in Abraham in this, we get a perfect example of what man can do on his own with no great help. But there's no promise related to it. There is no faith related to it. There is no necessity to wait on God for Him to act. You can just go ahead and get it done and get on with life. Now, the only problem is that the Scripture is very clear that the Spirit is the one that gives the real life and the flesh profits nothing. You see, what we're being told in the 16th chapter of Genesis is that there is nothing saving in anything that you or I will ever do. That the only salvation is in Him, and it's not just that He's the only way for me to get my soul saved, there is nothing that is ever done in my life or yours that is saving unless He is the one doing it. That's the reason that somewhere in my life I began to differentiate between the matter of working for God and working with Him. 
For a long time, I think I wanted to work for him. I wanted to do for him what I could. And I felt if I did enough, you know, some way or other, he'd touch it and bless it and make it significant. But it isn't what you and I do that saves. There is a difference between working for him and working with him. And I live with the Old Testament a good bit. One of the greatest words in the Old Testament is the word to wait. They that wait upon the Lord. You go through the book of Psalms and notice how many times the word wait occurs. It is in a sense a lie, a synonym for the, what you do after you've believed or because you believe. You believe His promise and then you wait. And you wait for Him to act. And you know that unless He does act, there will be nothing of any eternal significance here. Now, uh, how easy it is for us to work for Him instead of waiting to see what He's doing and then join with Him and be partners with Him in work instead of servants of His serving Him. Now, the only problem is that if it's my work and yours, it will perish. It will vanish away. That's the reason for that magnificent passage in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is speaking about the dissensions in the church at Corinth. And he says, there are some of you that say you're of Paul, and some say you're of Apollos, and some say you're of one of the other disciples. And he says, all of this is going to be wood, hay, and stubble, because if it's Peter or Paul or Apollos, you can count on it that there will be no permanent fruit from it. It is what the Spirit does that has eternal significance to it. And so, he says, you can be a partner to gold and silver and precious stones and those valuable things, or you can spend your life And when it's all over, the flames will come. And what you've lived for, he's talking to believers. He's talking to people just like me and just like you. He's talking to camp meeting people, not the worldly crowd out there that's never known the grace of God. He's talking to people that have known the new birth and redemption through Christ. He said, you can spend your life and when it's over with, The fire will come, and when the fire comes, all things will be tested, and what you, instead of him, will be consumed. Now, but there's another problem. Not only what you and I can do instead of what he can do, and therefore, if it's what we do, it will perish, will be a waste of time, a waste of resources, a waste of human life, he says, it will be an obstacle to the true work of God. Do you notice that the thing that Paul labors in Galatians or one of the things that he labors there? The flesh is not just waste. It becomes part of the problem that the flesh is trying to solve. And so, he says, the son born in the ordinary way ended up persecuting the Son born by the Spirit. It is the same now. You're aware, and I am true, that it wasn't the Roman government that planned the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the descendants of Abraham who were in the flesh instead of in the Spirit. 
And so it is that uh, that opposition develops there. But fourthly, he says, it will always leave you in bondage. Because when you've tried everything you can try, it'll never be quite satisfying. And you'll always have to try to do a bit more, ever working, never resting. Absolute opposite of trusting and waiting. Now, it's not pacifism where you just sit back and do nothing. It is aggressive, active, looking to Him and following the lead that He gives. And when you do it, something takes place eternally significant. I have a friend who's had a lot of battles in his life, personal battles. He came from a preacher's home, and his father was a perfectionist of perfectionists. My friend never pleased his father in anything he ever did. His father was not only a perfectionist, he was extremely eccentric. And he was oftentimes an embarrassment to his son, son of a very intelligent person and a very good, wonderful human being. I've prayed with him, known him for, I suspect, 15 or 20 years. One of the persons that I hold in very high esteem. But one of the things I've always known is that he never quite had found real peace inside of him. I no question about him being a Christian. He loved Christ, desperately wanted to serve him. About three weeks ago, I was in a conference in Chicago, and he was there, one of the speakers. And he and I were together, he and his wife, and he turned to me as we stood, just the three of us, and said, Dr. Kenlaw, you've known me a good while. He said, I've been reading the third volume of Tom Oden's Systematic Theology, the volume on the Holy Spirit. And he said, do you know, after 45 years, I have found peace. I looked at him. Excited, he said, you know, I have learned in my heart something that I've always known in my head and be able, been able to repeat. I now know inside me that it's not what I do that counts, it's what he does. And he said, I have found peace. I turned and looked at his wife. And her eyes were full, and she looked across at me and said, Dr. Kenlaw, he's different. He's different because he has stopped his working to let God work. It's interesting. The next day he said to me, you know, I'm not in the ministry, but I'd love a chance to preach. <laughs> When we get that relationship right, it frees us, and then we can do the things with God, with His leading, that have significance to them. Now, I wouldn't be surprised. I know that he came out of plenty of holiness camp meetings, and he has been in uh, Christian work, and if he could do that through those years without finding peace, I wouldn't be surprised there are some of us that still have a lot of the flesh in us and we're leaning on it instead of leaning on, on Christ. And 
It's what we do instead of what he does. Now, what are the marks of the flesh? There's a line in that 16th chapter of Genesis that sort of tells the whole story. Listen, let me read it for you. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Do you know she did? And that family that she built through Hagar was one of the greatest problems that the truth descendants of Abraham had throughout the totality of their existence. Because she decided to build her family. You can say, Lord, I want to make a reputation for myself here. I want to build a ministry here. I want to build a ministry for you. And when it's over with, it'll be a problem. It'll be an obstacle to the true progress of the kingdom of God. And it'll be bondage for you. And sooner or later, it will collapse. If there is any generation in human history that ought to understand that, it is the current generation. All you've got to do is look around you at the tragic collapses morally, spiritually, professionally, maritally in the Christian world today because we have been building our own kingdom instead of letting Him build His kingdom and fit into His kingdom where He wants us to be. I remember Karl Barth said when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Judah said, is it I? And Karl Barth said, yes, it was the I in Judas that crucified Jesus. He said, now there's a contrast biblically to that. There was another fellow who fought him a long time and then said, I am crucified with him. Henceforth, I don't live for myself, but I live for him. He said, the uncrucified I will always crucify Jesus, but the crucified I will exalt and glorify him. Most important thing in the Christian world today is for those of us that profess to be Christians to let God crucify the ego within us until we are broken before Him, because it's only the humble that are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how do we avoid that? There's not a person in this crowd today that's been a Christian longer than two or three years, but that somewhere has lived in the flesh. If there is, I'd like to meet you afterwards. I'd like to build a monument to you, because all of us at one time or another, we've done it, And that's one of the ways that God lets us know where we belong to dwell. Now, how do you protect yourself from making the mistakes that good people, godly people, make all around you? 
There are two things that go together, and I don't know which one to say first. If I had two mouths and two voices, I'd say them at the same time. One of them is you need to know the Word of God, or I need to know the Word of God, and the other is we need to know the voice of the Spirit. Because the Word gives us passages like this to teach us and to instruct us. And the Spirit is the one that can bring them alive and say there's some of that in you, Kinlaw. I have a friend that I see about twice a year. We're on a national board together. He uh, is one of the most prominent men in his denomination and a great man of God. Always, if I can, sit next to him in these meetings and at the lunches and dinners and so forth, because always come away with a blessing. We were standing in O'Hare Airport waiting for our planes, and he said, Dennis, we've got a few minutes. Could I share something with you? He said, I was in my 30s. I'd been very successful in a pastorate. My church was growing. He said, I had a multiple staff. He said, I had some prominence in the community. And in my denomination, they looked upon me as successful. But he said, slowly, I came to the place where I realized it was all wood, hay, and stubble. So he said, one night I went in my study and locked the door behind me and got down on my face on the floor and said, God, if you can do something more for me, it isn't worth it. I was interested in that, so I found myself listening very intensely, moving a little closer to him. He said, Dennis, you know the most interesting thing happened. It was just as if I were a briefcase, and God picked me up and turned me upside down and began to shake me. And he said he just kept on shaking and it was astounding what fell out of that briefcase that I had never acknowledged was there. He said, I didn't know whether he ever quit shaking or not. But he said, finally he did, and when he quit, he turned it right side up and filled it with himself. I had come to the end of Bill, and I had come to the beginning of his fullness. He said, you know, I don't know that it happened, but I'd have sworn the lights were off. I would have sworn the room lighted up. But he said, I would have sworn it lighted up. He said, I decided not to tell anybody. He said, a few weeks passed and we were in our staff meeting. And he said, we finished our agenda and he said, suddenly everybody got still, but nobody moved. And he said, everybody looked at one of the staff members, the senior one. And he said, I knew something was coming, so I braced myself. And he said, the staff member looked over and said, Pastor, we've been talking. We've got a question we want to ask you. It's very personal. It may be that you don't want to answer it. Well, he said, what is it? They said, you know, we think something's happened to you. 
And if it has, we'd like for you to tell us about it. So Bill said, I told him what had happened. He said, now don't tell anybody. He said, in a few weeks, we were in a deacon's meeting. He said, we finished our agenda, and everything got still. And he said, everybody turned and looked at the chairman of the board of deacons, and he said, I knew something was coming. So he said, I braced myself. And he said, the chairman of the board looked over and hesitantly said, Pastor, we've been talking, and we have a question we want to ask. He said, it's very personal. You may not want to answer it. And he said, well, what is it? And the chairman of his board of deacons said, we think something's happened to you. And if it has, we'd like for you to tell us about it. So he said, I shared what had happened. Do you know that man is one of the greatest influences in America today for evangelism? And he's the kind who can do all his work behind the scenes with never any public recognition of it. But I know few people in the world whom I respect more totally than that man. When the eye gets out of the way, then he can begin to work. Now, I think we need to live with the Word until we know it. We need to walk with the Spirit intimately enough that we can sense His check. And when we begin to get the self at the center, we recognize that we've grieved Him and can change. And we need to ask Him to give us a passionate appetite for Himself. Now, I'm not sure how to separate these two things, and they may be the same thing. But if there is anything that is as important as getting your soul saved, I'll tell you what I think it is. It's getting a spiritual appetite. I've decided the greatest gift God has ever given me is a hunger for Him. Do you know that if I hunger for Him, I don't have any problem reading the Bible? If I've got enough hunger in my heart, I have trouble laying it down. Do you know that I don't have a problem praying if I've got enough hunger for Him? Do you know I find myself witnessing almost whether I want to or not if my hunger is great enough? I'd like to ask you about your appetite this afternoon. Is he the most important one in your life? Is the Word the most important book in your life? Is your fellowship with him the most important friendship in your life? The most important love relationship? The one out of which all other relationships come. You know, most of us have lived through periods when our relationship to Him came out of our relationship to somebody else. A husband or a wife or a mother or a father or a friend or a pastor. We need to get to the place where every relationship in our lives comes out 
of that relationship and is determined by and hunger is the thing we need most. Now, having said that, still isn't easy and we can be fooled. Let me illustrate. You come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. That matchless passage in 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And Jesus says in that last day, he said, there are some of you who will say, I was a preacher in your name. I was an evangelist. I was not only that, I was a prophet. I prophesied for you. They say, I had great spiritual power. I cast out devils. And I actually did miracles in your name and for your glory. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, I assume that prophecy is a good. I assume that driving out demons is a good. And I assume that working miracles is a good. But apparently a person can do all that without God. They thought they belonged to Him. Turn to Luke 10. You will remember He sent the 72 out. And they come back rejoicing that the devils have been subject to them. He says, don't rejoice that the spirits have been subject to you. The thing you need to rejoice in is that your names are written down in heaven. You will remember in the 11th chapter, they are accusing Jesus of casting out devils by Beelzebub. And he says, if I cast them out by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Apparently Jesus felt that there were a lot of people beside himself who could cast out devils. But he said, if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, the kingdom has come to you. I can do his work, but if it's my work, it does not count. You remember 1 Corinthians 13? You can speak eloquently, you can speak in tongues. You can have the gift of prophecy, fathom all mysteries. You can have faith to remove mountains. You can give all your goods to the poor. And you can surrender your life for martyrdom to the flame. But Paul said, you can have all that and it be zero. You know those passages I don't like. (laughs) There are moments when I wish they weren't there. But why are they there? They're given for people like me. Because you see, the person who's the closest to the ministry of God is the one that may be most easily deceived. But that's also true about people who come to camp meetings. It can become a tradition. It can become something all the good people we know do. Instead of an encounter with God. Do you know it would be better for you not to come to camp meetings if you don't find Him here?
than to come and miss him? That's as true for me as it is for you. And so God gives us these frightening passages for our own admonition. But it, it's possible. Maybe difficult, but it's possible. That is, if we will let His Spirit lead us, guide us, we can know when we've found the center of His will. You may stumble into it, but if your heart's right, He'll let your stumbling be in the right direction. I look back on some of my own ministry and smile. I remember earlier in my ministry, I was in a community, an upper-class community, had some very remarkable people in it, very gifted people, and the church was growing, and I began to decide who could do what. And so I picked out a half a dozen leaders. They're the kind of people you couldn't fail with because they'd proven in the world their genius. I took a man who ran a Ford company that built, at one time was responsible for all the Ford transmissions built in North America and made him a Sunday school teacher, and he was a total flop. I took a fellow who was the vice chancellor of the State University of New York and put the Egyptian government together and decided what he could do, and he fell flat on his face. When I had done that with about six people, I got down on my face and said, God, what's wrong? He said, you look at their reputation in the world and their earthly achievements and you made your judgments on the wrong standard. You didn't make it on my standard and you didn't make it on their gifts. You made it on their reputation. So we started all over again. But you see... It's all right to stumble if you listen and recognize that you have. Now, is God at work in your life? Or is it what you're doing? That's the reason the holiness message is so crucial because it's that experience of heart purity that gets us away from appearances and gets us to eternal reality. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.